Hello and welcome back to Your Money, Your Mission, the show that helps you maximize your wealth by turning complex financial situations into actionable advice. Powered by Johnson Financial Group. Let's go to today's caller. Hi, Kelly. This is Courtney. The market has been so tough since the pandemic, I find myself at a loss, figuratively and literally. It seems like there's no place to hide. My fiance says I'm overly emotional when it comes to investing. I do want to make good choices, but how do you do that in the face of almost daily news about something that will affect the market negatively? Courtney, there is a lot in that question, and I have just the person to address that. With me today is Joe Meyer. He is an attorney, um, but also the director of wealth strategy at Johnson Financial Group. Joe has extensive experience in estate and financial planning and is also our resident expert as to behavioral finance. Thank you for being with us today, Joe. Thanks for the invitation, Kelly. Joe, there's a lot in that question for Courtney. Uh, the markets have been rocked repeatedly, and the last couple of years, investors are very concerned. What do you think the key is to weathering this extended storm? So that is, there is a lot to that question. So let's start here. Um, because I think Courtney's question has an assumption built into it, and that is the thing to focus most on for financial success, right? For financial happiness, whatever Courtney wants from her assets is investment performance. And the reason for that, that's a logical conclusion to take, is we've got right entire networks built uh, around financial performance and investing. We have... If you look at the content out there, um, financial um, investing-based content, it dwarfs um, any other thing that is an indicator of success uh, for people financially. But when you really look at the numbers, and there are some really good studies, Vanguard's done one, Russell's done one, uh, Vanguard's is probably the most famous, and you look at what it takes for somebody like Courtney to be financially successful. And by the way, that depends on how Courtney defines that, first of all. But when it comes to financial success, there's, there's sort of three factors. Um, one is, in fact, investment performance, right? Obviously, the more our investments grow, the more that success we get. Um, the second is tax minimization. The more money that we get to keep and reinvest and use for ourselves, the less it goes to the government, the better success we have. And then finally, there are behaviors, things that we do. Um, around investing. So if you look at those three components, and again, you go back to what would the media tell us is the most important based on the amount of content, it's not close. Um, there's 10 times the amount of media, right? TV shows, blogs, podcasts, whatever, articles um, on how you invest your money, how you get the maximum performance versus tax minimization. Um, but tax minimization is at least, uh, and again, this is always dependent on who we're talking about, but at least two to three times more important when it comes to economic success. Then you look at tax minimization versus behavior. Um, there is twice as much information about tax minimization, so 20 times as much in information about investment performance as there is about behavior. But behavior dwarfs either of the other ones. And Again, that's sort of surprising at first, and then you think about it, right? Think about all the situations we've heard of where we have really good investment choice, really good planning, really good tax minimization, but we have the wrong mistake, made at the wrong time, right? We have the wrong sort of situation, fear, we give in to fear at the wrong time, 
we do, we all know, Kelly, you and I definitely know, given what we do, right? The name of the game is to buy low, sell high. But, right, what they do is given fear, they do the opposite, right? They buy high and sell low. Either they give into fear or greed, whichever one's sort of driving their emotional uh, situation at the time. And that's, that's what's going to get in the way of financial success, right? So, again, I would tell Courtney that, when she worries about being overly emotional, I think she is engaging in normal behavior. Um, I think here's where Courtney has an advantage, is she recognizes it, right? She recognizes that she has some emotions that could cause her to make some mistakes. And she, by, by, just by the fact of sending in the question, she's asking for help. So, so I think Courtney is probably better off than her fiance is, honestly, that she at least recognizes um, the things that could get in the way of her success, and she's asking for help to get through them. So, Joe, she, she talks about her fiance saying she's being a little overly emotional. Um, but this is not a gender thing, is it? No. In fact, it, it probably flips the other way. So let's... So let's start with some neuroscience, because right, you don't have a great conversation uh, without first starting with neuroscience. So from a neuroscientific perspective, and we, this kind of science has come really into bear in the last 10 years or so, especially neuropsychology, right? Why does, why does our brains cause us to do what we do, right? That's the nature of neuropsychology. So if you look at, and because now they can look into our brains, right? And they can watch us when we make decisions and see what portion of our brains light up. What you will find is that when human beings make decisions, the portion of our brains that light up is a portion of our brain that doesn't understand numbers, doesn't understand words, isn't logical, it's emotional. So all of us, every single one of us, men, women, old, young, make decisions from emotion. It's just true. It's neurological. Um, so when you sort of accept that, that decisions are made in a part of our brain that doesn't understand numbers and letters um, and words, um, what Courtney is recognizing is human. It's not gender-related at all. And so what the science tells us is that when we make decisions, we have portions of our brain that are screaming at us, um, from lack of a better description. And some of that's psychological, some of it's evolutionary, some of it's neurological, but it results in these sort of characterizations that we have to watch out for when we're advisors. We have to watch out for when we're investors um, because they, and we characterize them as, as biases. Um, and we got to watch out for these biases when we make decisions. So the first one of those biases that, that Courtney is Courtney's struggling from, you're struggling from, I'm struggling from, we all struggle from is something called loss aversion. And what loss aversion uh, tells us is that when we have a decision that results in a loss, okay? So let's say we have a decision that results in a $100 loss. And we have a decision that results in a $100 gain. So we have two decisions, one that's a $100 loss, one that's a $100 gain. Um, rationality, right? Economics would tell you that the pain of that loss is equivalent to the joy of the gain. It's $100 either way. What? The truth is, and this has been highly studied, 
And it's true across, this study has been done many, many, many times, and they always come out with the same conclusion, is the pain of the $100 loss is twice as acute, twice as painful as the joy of the $100 gain. Now, what does that tell us when it comes, okay, so that's how we experience loss and gain. Now, what does that tell us when it comes to how we make decisions? Our brain, right, like don't touch a hot stove, right? Our brain is wired from the time we are little, little kids to avoid pain. And so what our brain is telling us is if the loss is more painful than the gain, take action that will not create loss, right? Other, what other people might call be conservative in mm -hmm. the financial markets. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is this thing called regret aversion. And what regret aversion tells us is that already painful loss, what loss aversion, gets even more painful. In fact, four times as painful if the loss was due to a decision we made. Well, that's what Courtney's saying, right? Right. I, I, exactly. I don't want to make any decisions because if I make a decision and I'm wrong, it's going to hurt. Right. And if it's my mistake, it's going to hurt, hurt even more. Worse. Hurt even more. So that raises the third bias, which is something we called herd mentality. And what herd mentality tells us is herd mentality is actually a protective response from our brain that says, if we know that loss is painful and we know that decisions we make that cause loss is painful, let's not make decisions. Let's, in fact, go with the crowd and just do what everyone else is doing. Because if we're doing what everyone else is doing, then we can't feel bad about it, right? We simply are just following the crowd. It's not something that's gonna cause pain. So again, our brain is neurologically saying avoid pain. But now let's think about that from an economic perspective, Kelly, what you and I do. If we follow the crowd, by definition, we buy high and sell low. We do the exact things that you should not do to have economic success. So what Courtney is thoughtfully sharing with us is my brain is screaming at me. It's telling me to do things that I know are wrong and I don't know what to do about it and people around me are telling me stop being so emotional. Completely wrong advice, right? Completely wrong advice. What we should be saying is um, and what we say to our clients is um, you've got to recast the loss. Um, and what, we, what I mean by that is, um, unless you're Scrooge McDuck, and I always use the Scrooge McDuck comparison, right? Do you remember Scrooge McDuck, Kelly? I sure do. So Scrooge McDuck, the embodiment of Scrooge McDuck is there's a duck, obviously. It's an animated duck. It looks like Donald Duck, but he, I think he wears a monocle or something like that. And every time you see Scrooge McDuck, he's rolling around in money because for Scrooge McDuck, the ultimate uh, sign of happiness is to actually physically be involved rolling around in money. Well, again, I know the if we were to turn on right CNBC or Fox Business or we were to like watch one of our competitors' ads right now, we would hear messaging that indicates that our clients are just human embodiments of Scrooge McDuck, right? That everyone just wants more. Um, that's not my experience. Is it your experience, Kelly? No, it's not. It's not my, right? So, so I think people want more impact. I think people want more of what their power adjective is. It might be success, it might be fulfillment, it might be happiness, right? right? So the first thing to do is to recast what money means to you. Why is money important to you? So if we figure out, first of all, why money is important to me, and then we build a strategy 
to use investment performance, tax minimization, and behaviors to get there, um, right? Commonly called a financial plan. I tend to call it a financial strategy, right? It's, right. It, that's what it really is, right? How do I get from here to there? But if we, if we recast why money's important to us and build a financial strategy around that, and now the markets are going all cattywampus, like Courtney's right. describing, um, what Courtney should do is she should sit down with her advisor and say, I- I'm scared. I'm worried. I, I, my brain is telling me to move to something more conservative because I can't, I, I can't emotionally take this loss. And that gives the advisor an opportunity to say to Courtney, well, let's run some numbers. And if we run some numbers and we run some plans and we move your allocation, if you would, to something that you feel more comfortable with, less scared about, um, what's actually going to happen is we are going to position your strategy so that before maybe it had an 80% chance of success, now it's got a 40% chance of success. And so the loss, right, is not a temporary loss in value of assets that you're not going to sell anyway, so does it really matter versus um, an actual loss that we're going to lock in, which is going to cause you to lose all of these things that you care about, whether that's retirement at 62, sending your kids to wherever they want to go, creating a legacy in your assets. So again, the, the remedy to emotionally driven behavior that all of us, right, suffer from, because we're all neurologically came from the, right, the same right. place, the same evolution, is to make sure that you don't look at money the way Scrooge McDuck would, you look at the money with the way the human beings are, and that is what does it translate to important things in life like impact and fulfillment and success and happiness. So that that emotion, that behavior, that's not going to go away. We're still going to yeah. feel those things, right? Right. But what should someone be thinking about in terms of their advisor? How Who's the best advisor to help us navigate that emotion? Right. So, so your question had an assumption that I totally agree with, and that is we need help. Um, the best of us can't fight our brain, right? Think right. about, in the way to think about this, Kelly, think about the thing that scares you in life the most, right? Just visualize it. When you're in that situation, maybe it's spiders, maybe it's snakes, maybe it's bridges, maybe it's heights. And when you're there, right? When you, if you're scared of heights and you're up in the plane and you're getting ready to jump, there is no way, right? You can't tell your brain to be rational. That's, that's just not possible. Our brains are more powerful um, than we are when it comes to things about fear. And this is, at the end of the day, this is about fear. Um, so the only way we can get through it is to have help. And so you need, you, and with these financial decisions, because we're talking about financial decisions right now, you do need a financial advisor. You need that help. But you need a particular kind of financial advisor. And I always say what you want is a financial advisor that combines three things. The first is a biographer, which is sort of a weird thing to talk about when it comes to being a financial advisor, right? Why would I need a biographer? But if you think about the best biographies you've read, um, there's some what in it. What did this person do? But there's probably, if we counted sentences, there's even more why. Right. What was the person thinking? What was the motivation? Why did this person make decisions? Because the reason you're reading it is you knew what happened. It's historical. What you want to know is what was this person thinking? What were they motivated by? What, what mattered to them? A great plan, right? A great plan, one that 
allows us to fight back on our brain, for lack of a better description, is one that's built on important whys and important motivations. Who, who are the people that are important to you? What do you want for them? How do you want your assets to impact those people, starting with you? Um, so, so you need somebody that has the patience, the thoughtfulness, um, and the curiosity to uncover and capture your story. And that's a biographer. So, so the first thing you want is a biographer. If somebody, if you, by the way, and here, here's the way to know whether you have a biographer or not. If you have a first meeting with a financial advisor and they're talking about them and not you, you don't have a biographer. If you have, meet with a financial advisor and they're telling you about their process as opposed to asking about what you want, you don't have a biographer. Even if you have a meeting with a financial advisor and they're asking you what you own, so at least it's about you, but they're having conversations about stuff and not people, you don't have a biographer. So buy our fur. The second thing you want is an analyst. And the reason you want an analyst is, um, I'll, I'll tell you a real quick story about Michael Phelps, um, of all people. Uh, so <laughs> so how, do, how do we get to Olympic swimmers from talking about analysts? Michael Phelps, I don't know if you remember, Kelly, but in 2008, I think we all remember in 2008, Michael Phelps won more gold medals than any Olympian in the history uh, right. of the Olympics. Um, Michael Phelps' best event Right, so he won eight gold medals. His best event, the one that was locked and loaded, was the hundred butterfly. And I don't know. I mean, most people don't remember the hundred butterfly race, but uh, I think when I describe it, you might, you might, this might come back to you. So Michael Phelps is in the hundred butterfly, and the the announcers are sort of talking about it, and it's the race is closer than it should have been. Right, Michael Phelps should have always did blow out the competition on this event, and this one was a little closer than it should have been. But Michael Phelps won, and he won by a decent amount. And he, at the end of the race, this is what everyone will remember, Michael Phelps, who was sort of a calm, chill dude, right, mm -hmm. um, gets out of the pool, like comes out of the pool and starts slamming on the water, takes off his goggles and throws them, okay, mm -hmm. which was unphelpsian behavior. And so the announcers were like, well, what went on? Maybe he was just excited. Maybe he was off. Maybe he had cramps. So they, they end up interviewing him. NBC's interviewing him at the side of the pool. And he said, well, here's what happened. I was uh, 50 meters into the race and my goggles filled with water. And so I swam the last whatever hundred, the, the last 50 meters totally blind. And so NBC makes this big deal out of it. And the next day he's on one of the shows, maybe Good Morning America, and they're talking about it and sort of, because this sort of gets some buzz. And Michael Phelps says, well, the reason I could do it is I had done that race many times before. And the person asked, what do you mean? And Michael Phelps said, well, I knew my goggles might fill with water um, or something like that might happen. I might lose my goggles. And so my coach, Bob Bostad, and I um, had several training sessions where I swam all of my races completely blind. And so I just knew what the cadence was. I knew what I had to do, and that's why I won. I share the Michael Phelps story because what you need, remember what's going on is, is the market's going down, you're getting scared. Right, you're not right. knowing what's going to happen. You don't know what it means, but you know it's not good. Um, if all your advisors ever telling you is, you know, based on the average growth rate in the market, your assets are going to grow at six percent and you're going to be just fine. Well, we know that's not how markets work, right? That six percent is thirty up, twenty down, right? That's what happens. So, what you need to do is you need an advisor that. Phelps's your estate plan or your financial plan, right? That actually says if we if our timing is terrible, the plan still works. Or if our timing's terrible, here's how we have to change our behaviors to make sure that the plan works. So they actually test, they stress test 
your financial plan to make sure it works. So again, that's something an analyst would do. Think about what analysts do, right? They stress test financial right. situations. So that's the second thing you need. The third thing you need is a coach. And you know, you need somebody, because there's a distinction between an advisor and a coach. What's the distinction between the two? An advisor tells you what to do, a coach asks you what you think. An advisor gives you advice, a coach creates a connection. A coach motivates you to do mm -hmm. what needs to get done. A coach respects you um, as opposed to talking at you, right? So again, what you need is somebody who doesn't say, right? Like I think it was Courtney's fi uh, fiance, um, stop being so emotional. And by the way, like we could pull up, I bet you right now, if we got on Google, it would take us 10 minutes, we could pull up 40 articles that say don't give into emotion, right? Don't right. be emotional. Um, that's what an advisor would do because ultimately mathematically it's correct. But what a coach would do would say, I understand how you're feeling. I'm scared too. I'm worried. I'm empathetic. Um, but we knew it would happen. We knew we'd get here. And we knew at the end of the day, these are the behaviors that we're going to engage in to get us where we need to go, right? So again, uh, you need somebody that's empathetic, that understands, and then, then can help have a conversation with you about what matters and why and how behaving in a certain way, giving into fear will get in the way of the, right, will create the loss that you don't want as opposed to the loss that doesn't matter. So again, biographer, analyst, coach. That's great, Joe. Thank you so much for being with us today. That is a really interesting topic that I know impacts all of us. I so appreciate you being here. Kelly, I always appreciate you. And thank you to everyone listening to Your Money, Your Mission. If you have a question wherever you are listening to this episode, you can simply go to the show notes and it will say submit a question. Click on the link, write your question and hit submit. Also, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes of Your Money, Your Mission, the podcast designed to turn complex financial situations into actionable advice, powered by Johnson Financial Group. Products and services offered by these Johnson Financial Group companies, Johnson Bank and Johnson Wealth, Inc. Wealth management services are provided through Johnson Bank and Johnson Wealth, Inc., Johnson Financial Group companies. Additional information about Johnson Wealth, Inc., a registered investment advisor, and its investment advisor representatives is available at advisorinfo.sec.gov. Not FDIC insured, no bank guarantee, may lose value.